Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and the Pew Bible in front of you, that's probably page 676, maybe 677. We are going to be talking about the temptation this morning. There are a couple of temptation scenes in the Bible that are very important, very pivotal. One of them is in Genesis chapter 3, and the other one is Matthew chapter 4. And uh, in your mind, if you, if you know the Genesis chapter 3 story, sort of be, be thinking and be picturing that scene there, and then we'll also be talking about it a little bit, and then we'll, we'll picture the scene here too. Um, and remember also this, when Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he didn't put chapters and verses in there, okay? We have done that to help us find things better, and I'm glad we have, but don't ever let your chapters and verses help you miss what comes before and after, okay? So at the end of chapter 3, Matthew didn't say, all right, let's go ahead and draw the curtain on that scene and we'll kind of be done with it. I'll come back to this later. No, this is meant to be to just be read all the, kind of all the way through. Uh, and so when you see, when you leave the baptism scene in Matthew chapter 3, you go straight into the, uh, the temptation scene in chapter 4. And what I want you to notice about that is that Matthew chapter 3, the end of Matthew chapter 3, the baptism scene, is an amazing high. It's an amazing high point. Jesus has emerged on the scene. He's spoken his first words in the whole gospel of Matthew. Let this be done to fulfill all righteousness. And fulfilling all righteousness is this big, huge theme in all of the book of Matthew. And then he is baptized and the booming voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we'll give him the Holy Spirit on him, filling him. Amazing scene that John the Baptist and the others around there have seen. Jesus is at a high point in his life. He has been following, you know, he knows his father his whole life. He's been following his father his whole life. But here, very much in a public way, Jesus is affirmed uh, by his Father in heaven for all to see. Amazing high point. And that's when the temptation comes. That's when the temptation comes. And for you in your Christian life, I just want to uh, give you a warning. <laughs> it comes at the high points. What does the Bible say? Take, uh, when you stand, take heed lest you fall. When you stand, in your strongest moments, take heed. Be warned lest you fall lest you fall, okay? Uh, and so let's go ahead and let's start, look, let's start reading here in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll see what the Bible says. Lord, we're about to read your word. Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds to understand and grasp what you are teaching us in your word, what you're revealing about yourself in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Matthew was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, 
It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. It's easy for us, uh, and it's, it's often portrayed this way in film, that Jesus is this very strong and stoic person, and any time the devil comes to him and, and says anything to him, he just very quickly, just retorts very quickly. It's a very simple matter for him to resist all these temptations and be done with it and just say what he says, and the devil just runs away. Uh, and, and I wasn't there, so I don't know. But the devil never tempts you, never comes to you, and entice, never tries to entice you with things that are easy for you to resist. All of your real temptations in your life comes from things that you yearn for, things that you want a lot, uh, places in your life where you feel you are empty in this way and you need this thing or, or, or whatever it is. That is the way the devil comes to you. Temptations are not easy to resist. And all temptation is a kind of suffering to me. It is a kind of suffering. It comes from some place in your life where you feel inadequate or not well supplied, all right? So whatever it is, you know, just think of stealing money or something like that. Um, who steals money? Somebody who thinks they don't have enough of it, all right? And you may even have some of it. It's not just uh, the absolute poor that steal all the time. Very wealthy people steal often, okay? So it's just people who, whatever you think you don't have enough in, in, of in your life, whatever vacuum there is in your life, whatever yearning, whatever thing it is that you want more than anything, that is where the temptation comes. And it's a kind of suffering because when the temptation comes to you, it, it reveals an inadequacy in you. I don't have enough of that. I'm not good enough of the, at that. Or I don't have whatever I need. My, what my soul really needs and yearns for, I don't have it. I'm inadequate. And so you begin to have inner turmoil about it. And then uh, whatever it is that is presented to you is presented to you uh, in a way that is very enticing, but it's not noble. It's enticing, but it's not noble. It's not like somebody said, here, here's a gift. I want you to take it, okay? It's, you can have this. Here it is. Just, 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 just follow me. Carry it on a stick, whatever it is. It's presented to you in a way that you know is not right. It's presented to you. And so, besides just your yearning, the suffering of your yearning, now a new suffering comes, the inner turmoil of, I know what's right, and I'm being tempted to do wrong here. I love the honesty of children's story time, okay? Uh, all of the case studies that were presented to us this morning, I have a feeling are things that have literally played out in their lives, okay? There's a marshmallow. My soul yearns for the marshmallow. Have your, has your heart ever yearned for a marshmallow? Uh, not so much marshmallows for me, but cookies. I yearn for cookies. And then it's there. And it's just enticing you. It's not even in a jar. It's just on the table. But you know the right and wrong of it. You know the right and wrong of it. So the suffering of the hunger is there. And then the suffering of knowing what's right and wrong, the suffering of knowing the consequences, it's all there. And 
Here's the other thing that people don't talk about that much. If you resist temptation, there's suffering after that because you have embraced the yearning and the emptiness. You have denied yourself the thing that you really want. I knew a pastor in Tulsa who, he had another friend, uh, and I don't know if this guy was a pastor or not, but this guy had an, a woman offer him, herself to him. Offer, right there, offer, you can have me if you want me. And the guy did the right thing. He said no. He was a married man. No, I'm, I'm going to resist this. I'm not going to take what is offered to me here. You are offering yourself to me. I'm not going to take it. And this was the shocking thing that the pastor uh, told me. He said, you know what I told that guy when he told me that this was offered to him? I said, you'll regret it. What? You'll regret it. And not in a way that I wish I had committed adultery. I wish I had sinned. I wish I had, and I, 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 and I don't care what the consequences to my family or anything. No, 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 no. More like this. You have two natures inside yourself. If you're a believer, you're walking with the Lord, you've got the Spirit of Christ inside you, but you've got another nature inside of you as well, the sinful nature, and your sinful nature will dig into you all the time. Why didn't you satisfy me? Okay? Now, I don't think that that guy would suffer with that regret of not sinning forever. I think it would take a few weeks, maybe a few days even, for him to say, whew, I'm glad I didn't do that. But when you miss an opportunity for, to gain something, no matter if it's noble or, or not noble, in the back of your mind, there will be a mosquito back there saying, if I just had, if I just had, if I had just done that, if I had just taken that, if I had just whatever, then I wouldn't have this ache inside of me right now. And I hope that all of that is untrue. But I, I, know, I know that in my life, there have been times that I did the right thing and still felt bad about it. It's unsettling. It's unsettling all the time to have the yearning, to have an emptiness, to have the wrong thing offered to you uh, in the wrong way, and then to also say no, and then to live with your good, even good decision afterwards. It's just a huge frustration, a huge frustration. So all I would say is that uh, when, when a temptation comes to your life, it can really be bad and be bad for a long time, no matter if you choose the right or wrong. And I don't think that when Jesus resisted the turning of the stones into bread, I don't think that he suddenly stopped being hungry. I think that the emptiness was still there. He was still hungry. And I don't know how long all this temptation lasted. If it was just a few minutes, probably not. If it was a few hours, maybe so. If it was days or weeks, I have no idea how long the temptation lasted. But I can tell you this. His first resistance to temptation, when he said no to taking the bread and he had that hunger still inside him, he took that physical hunger into every other temptation as well. Having that yearning, having that emptiness inside of you, knowing what you need and not being able to get it is hard, is hard. Now, why did all this happen? Why did all this happen to begin with anyway? This tempting. And some of your other Bibles might say the testing, the tempting and the testing. The truth is that testing and tempting is part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian life. And I wouldn't even say that God's not a part of it. God does not tempt you so that you will fall. Everybody remember that. God will not tempt you so that you will fall. He never wants you to fall, but he does want you to face difficult situations. 
He does want you to go into these situations and reflect him, reflect his image in your life, reflect his spirit inside of you, and he wants you to resist. But the only way to do that is to put you in the situation, to put you in the situation. And so here I'll stop and I'll contrast a couple of scenes in the Bible. When God created Adam and Eve, it was a wonderful, glorious, new creation. A crea- they were created in a way that you and I were not. We had parents. Adam and Eve, they didn't have parents. God was their father. And he creates them. And then what did he do after he created them? He called them good. You are good. I am pleased with you. Just like he said to Jesus, I am pleased with you. And he put them in a wonderful, amazing place. He only denied them one thing, one thing. The fruit of that tree is off limits to you. The fruit of that tree is off limits to you. And so here they are put into a situation. Will they trust or will they not trust? What will they do? And then here comes the snake, okay? That whole event is called the fall of man. It's not called the temptation of Adam and Eve. We call it the fall of man. Why? Because it didn't go well. They didn't trust the Lord. They looked at this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they said, he's right. The snake's right. God's holding out on us. He's he's told us so many things, but there's something he doesn't want us to know, and apparently that is a very important thing. I've got to have it. I've got to have it for myself now. I need to know it, and so I'm going to take it, and I'm going to eat it. That at least is Eve's story. I would say that that is Eve's story. Uh, You know, the Bible presents Adam and Eve as falling from temptation to temptation in a couple of different ways. Eve was truly deceived. She was truly deceived. She was convinced uh, that, that a lie was the truth. Adam, however, it seems like the Bible sort of presents him as the true rebel, the true sinner the one who knew it was a lie and wanted it anyway, okay? And I don't know which one you'd rather be. You probably are both. There have been times that you've let yourself be deceived. You've deluded yourself into believing a lie. And there are other times that you know right and wrong. You know exactly what's going on here, and you, uh, you do it anyway. Knowing the consequences, knowing the rebellion, knowing the disappointment, knowing what exactly what it'll be like. It'll, you know what it'll be like this time? After I do this thing this time, it'll be exactly like it was last time I did this thing. Nobody commits a sin once, all right? Whatever sin you've got in your life, you've not just done it once. You've done this two or three times, several times maybe. Maybe it's the daily thing that you live with, and you know exactly what it's like each time that you do this. And Adam is the true rebel who knew exactly what he was doing, who knew maybe didn't fully know all the consequences, didn't really understand all the consequences, but he did it anyway. Then we come to Jesus, okay? We'll compare and contrast that with with Jesus, Jesus is put into a very different situation. He is not a special creation of God like Adam and Eve were. We never say that Jesus was created. Jesus was begotten of God. And that is a word that we don't use anywhere except in theology, okay? But it's a very important doctrine that Jesus was not created. He is God. He has always existed, just like God the Father has always existed. He did not have a beginning. He has always existed. But he does have a a moment when he was begotten of God. And then he was born into this world as well. And it was a special creation, a special creation. Just like Adam and Eve, Jesus was born without the sinful nature. Jesus was born without the sinful nature. You and I have a sinful nature when we are born. 
And that is the, the importance of the virgin birth is that Jesus was born without the sinful nature. Apparently, you, uh, uh, you inherit your sinful nature from your father's side. You may still uh, sin in the, in the ways that your mother sinned, um, but you inherit, theologically, you inherit your sinful nature from your father's side. And so Jesus is born of a virgin so that he would not inherit the sinful nature. And the book of Romans calls him the second Adam, the second Adam. So his temptation, it's not just his temptation as opposed to everybody else's temptation. No, this is the garden scene, take two. We're going to try this all over again. The first Adam was presented uh, with a temptation and a situation, and he was not victorious over it. But here comes the second Adam, and we'll see if the second Adam is more victorious than the first Adam was. And of course he was. And so Jesus has ascended and has been given the name above uh, every other name because he resisted all of these temptations. Now let's think about the temptations um, more specifically here. Um, the first temptation. What was the first temptation? Turn the stones to bread. Turn the stones to bread. And it's not just turning stones to bread, okay? It's not just turning stones to bread. What is at the heart of this uh, temptation? The heart of this temptation is don't trust God. Don't trust God to provide all of your needs. You're going to have to do it yourself. He's holding out on you. Just like Adam and Eve, they think he's holding out on them, on them in, in terms of, of wisdom and knowledge, not, not in terms of food. They were in a very lush place. Jesus is in a wilderness. And remember, when the Bible talks about wilderness, it's not main wilderness. It's like the surface of the moon. This place is east of Jerusalem. They called it the devastation. That's, that's what they called it. It was not just the wilderness. It, was, it had a name, Jeshimon. The devastation. You go out there, there's nothing. There's nothing out there. It's a rocky, sandy, terrible place where the, the, the sunlight is, is reflected off the surface and it's over 100 degrees all the time. No water, no food. And he's out there. And he's fasting for 40 days. And then the tempter comes and says, and remember the caveat at the beginning, if you are the son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread if you are the Son of God. Jesus has just been baptized, and the booming voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. And the first thing, it's the greatest affirmation Jesus could ever, ever receive. You are my beloved Son, right there from the Heavenly Father. And the devil comes in and says, I'm not sure that's true. I heard the voice booming from heaven but I'm not sure that's true. I don't think you are who the voice said you are. Prove it to me. Prove it to me. Show me your power. Prove it to me. What do you got? Turn these stones to bread. If you really are the Son of God, you can do it. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to empty myself of my power, and I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust my Father. He will provide for me. He'll give me everything I need. I'm not going to do it your way. And Jesus' life reflects the Old Testament story of the people of Israel, okay? You remember in the first couple of chapters, I emphasize this a lot in Matthew, that Jesus' life mirrors the Old Testament in an amazing way. Remember the Exodus. The children of Israel in the great salvation moment, they come out of, uh, of Egypt, they go, they part the waters like parting the waters of baptism, they go through the water, they're saved from the water, and then where do they go? They go to the wilderness. They go to a place where there's no food and water. They go out there. And how long are they out there before they start grumbling and before they start doubting God's provision? Not long, a month, maybe 40 days, something like that. And they're out there. 
And all of a sudden, they get hungry and they get thirsty, just like Jesus. And what do they do? They doubt. They grumble. They say, oh my goodness, he's brought us out here to kill us. Not just that he won't provide for our needs. He's brought us out here on purpose to kill us. He didn't have our good in mind. For some reason, he hates us now, and he's going to let us starve to death and and die of thirst out here in the desert. Oh, no. And that grumbling happened many times while they were out in the desert. And people died because of it. Because it was this thing that God has says, i got to get this out of my people. This lack of trust, this lack of faith, this belief that I won't provide for them. i got to get this out of them until they're pure and they always, always trust me. Well, in the end, of course, God did provide for them. He did provide for them. Water from the rock, manna from heaven. It all came, but only after they had sinned. And then here we have Jesus in the same exact situation. And maybe the temptation is to believe he's brought me out here to kill me. The Spirit of God brought me out here. Why in the world would the Lord bring me out here just to deny me everything? He brought me out here to kill me. And then Jesus says, no, I don't believe that. That's not true. That's not true. I am his son, and he will provide for me. And guess what? I don't live on just bread anyway. I live on his word. First temptation. First temptation down. The hunger's still there. The hunger's still there. The thirst is still there. That yearning is still there. But he has resisted this temptation until, and, and the devil, maybe, I don't know if the devil's ever impressed, but maybe the devil's impressed. Ah, you've got some trust there. You've got some faith. You've got more faith than the people of Israel did, don't you? All right. Well, let's just take your faith for a little walk. Let's take it for a walk. And then here we come up to the top of the temple. You've got faith. I was impressed with your faith in the wilderness. Let's see how much faith you've got. Let's see how much faith you've got. Throw yourself down. Hey, you said it won't, man doesn't live just on, the, the, on bread alone. Every, mouth that, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God's word also says this. Throw yourself down. His angels will catch you. How much faith do you have now? Huh? What are the limits of your faith? Jesus says no. No. Um, what did he say? <laughs> Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. And this is a very, when I was thinking about this, my, all the conclusions I was coming to were, 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 ugh, were tricky or wrong at first because in the, in the first temptation, you're, you're tempted to have no faith. And in the second temptation, you're tempted to have too much, too much faith. You can't have too much faith. You can't obey God too much. You can't depend on God too much. So what is it? What is on this other side? What is on this other side over here? It's when you take your faith, take your religion, and use it to prove a point for yourself, to prove power for yourself, something like that. He is tempted, he is tempted to reflect God in a, in a very bad way. He is tempted to be reckless with his faith uh, just for personal power, just for manipulation, and just to prove a point. Did Jesus really believe that God could, would, would send his angels to catch him if he jumped off the temple? Of course he believes that God can do that, but he didn't do that. But that doesn't mean that Jesus says, well, I'm just a very reserved person. I don't do stupid things for no reason. Okay? He wasn't like that. 
and let me prove it. The devil says, jump off the temple. He'll catch you. Don't worry. And Jesus says, absolutely not. And God says, the disciples are out there on a boat. Go walk on the water and go out to them. I know it's a lot of wind and waves and everything, but I want you to walk on the water and go out to to them. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go. Now, if you jumped off a building, how well would you fare? Not well? If you tried to walk on the water, how well would you fare? Not well. When the devil tries to tell you to do something in faith to what, don't do it. When God says, I want you to trust me and step out in faith this way, you do it. It all comes from whose voice? It all comes back to whose voice are you listening to? If God wants you to do something that may seem stupid and reckless to other people, you do it. When the devil wants you to do something that may even be perfectly sane, you don't do it. You learn to, do, to discern which voice am I listening to? Who am I listening to? I will step out on faith. I will do things that are a little bit strange, that may seem very illogical to some people if the Lord tells me to do it. But if it's the enemy telling me to do it, no matter how reckless or how much I could prove of my own personal faith or power or whatever, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I have known two or three um, two or three peers of mine who were pastors who often went through a time of sort of testing uh, or temptation to use their own spiritual gifting for their own power, for their own manipulation. And you'll be tempted in this way too. Whatever spiritual gifting you've got, whatever um, influence you have in a church, something like that, you'll be tempted to use it for bad, Okay. But preachers know this worse than anybody because, hey, I've got a pulpit. I've got a somewhat captive audience. You're not captive. You could walk out anytime you want, but I've got an audience right here. What could I do with the gifting that I've been given? I'd better not do anything but preach God's word, okay? All right. But in both of these things, in both of these things, there's also, I think, an anger building in Jesus towards the devil. Not just a stoic man knowing he's in a test. I think there's an anger building, and I think you see it in his third response. Because the devil is saying, your father says he loves you, but he won't provide for you. And Jesus, tempted, says, no, that's not true, and I wish you'd stop saying that. And in the next one, he says, he won't really protect you. He won't really protect you. Uh, he's not really, he doesn't really care about you. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. That's not true. And here we come to the third one, the biggest temptation of all. And here he is on a high mountain, looking out, sees all the kingdoms of the world, sees all their splendor. And remember, the mission, the mission that God has given to Jesus is go redeem the nations. The nations are under the thumb of the devil. They're under the thumb of the enemy. And I want you to go, win them back, win them back to yourself, and then present them to me. That is the mission that Jesus has in the world, to make every nation a Christ-centered nation, every group of people, uh, Jesus followers, Jesus worshipers, and then Jesus presents us to God the Father. Father, I've done your mission. Here it is. Here is the world as you intended it to be. This This is the mission. 
And the devil comes to him and says, I know what your mission is. And I know how it's going to be done. It's going to be done through the cross. But it doesn't have to be. You don't have to die. All these nations are under my thumb. And let me just tell you, that's a lie because all nations belong to God, whether sinful or not. But the devil says, I control all the nations. They do whatever I want them to. And here you are, you're going to give your life's blood, you're going to suffer on a cross. The fact is, if you bow down and worship me, I'll just give them to you. No suffering required. No humiliation required. No father turning his back on you required. No tomb required. How about that? I'll just give them to you. If somebody said, I'm going to give you the dream you've had all your life, but I'm going to beat you nearly to death first. Or I can just give it to you. Which way do you want it? Mm. But the fact is, Jesus did not come to win the world through corruption. He came to win the world through redemption. The, the end doesn't justify the means. And if you use sinful means, the end will never be what you wanted it to be. The end will always be catastrophic. Righteous means create a righteous end. Sinful means create a sinful end. You don't want it that way. And so Jesus says, away from me, Satan. I've had enough of you. I'm angry that you've even suggested these things. Worship the Lord your God. Worship him only. And then the devil said, yeah, all right, but I'll be back. Don't think of this temptation as being Jesus' only temptation. Uh, later, when, uh, when, when Peter suggested that the cross wasn't necessary, what did, what did Jesus say? He said, behind me, Satan. Behind me, Satan. Temptation came to Jesus in all forms, all the time. But for this scene right here, at least, there was an end to it here. And then after that, after all that difficulty, all, after all that suffering and temptation, then finally the angels come and say, here you go, he's gone. Have a rest, eat, drink. It's your Sabbath. You're done with it for now. All right, so all of, all of temptation is suffering. I'm sorry to tell you that. And what is the way to resist all temptation? And I think that you'll get a lot of different uh, suggestions. And I think all suggestions are good. I think, uh, like we told the kids down here, extricate yourself from the situation. If the marshmallows on the table or the toy on the table is too much temptation, go out in the yard and play. Extricate yourself from the situation. Absolutely. Uh, throwing scriptures out. Pull out all the scripture you've got. Throw it at the devil and say, no, 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 that's wrong. What you're tempting me to do is wrong. It's all wrong, and I'm not going to do it. It's wrong. But I think there's also something that we have to embrace. Because I've never been tempted uh, and then said, no, I'm not going to do that right now, and walked away, and the temptation really fully went away. It often goes away for about a half an hour, something like that. What is the way, what is the true way um, to help yourself uh, resist temptation, and it's got to be a shift in mindset, a shift in mindset. And what did Jesus say basically in all of these things? 
I choose the cross. I choose the cross. That was the, that was the epitome or the, the climax of, of the temptation scene here was, Jesus, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the easy way? Are you going to, or are you going to choose the cross? And I think that the, that is the, the lifestyle, the mentality that I have to embrace too. If I'm going to resist temptation, I have to come out and just admit it openly. No, I choose the cross. I, I am tempted because I suffer with, a, a, with some kind of emptiness in my life that God hasn't filled yet. I, uh, I suffer because uh, um, when, when I'm tempted because the temptation reminds me what, of what I don't have and what I, what I really, really crave and want. Um, and then whether or not I succumb or not, it just seems like it's suffering. If I succumb to the temptation, it's suffering, certainly. If I don't, uh, I torture myself for a little while afterwards. But if I can change the way I, I think about it and say, no, 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 I choose the cross, at least then I have the hope of the resurrection afterwards. What is the new life? If I do resist this temptation and this sin is completely removed from my life, guess what I have? I have a new life. And I've, I've talked, and I always joke about it, or I try to make light of it, okay? But uh, you, you all know I suffer with overeating, okay? And I, and I overeat a lot, and, I can, and you can make a lot of fat guy jokes. There's a whole lot of comedians out there that that's their whole theme of their, of their comedy routines is the fat guy jokes, okay? Uh, and I've, been, I've overeaten all my life, and I've been overweight all my life. It's not just something that happened after college or after high school or something like that. It's always been there. Uh, and any time, any time that I'm tempted with food, and let me tell you, last week I ate a lot of cookies. I ate a lot of cookies. But any time, and here we are, laughing and making joke light of it, but I'm telling you, diabetes is not a laughing matter, and I'm not diabetic, but I don't want it, okay? Uh, not being able to fit into your clothes that are far too big for you, uh, uh, you know, not being able to fit in, into even your bigger clothes, that, that is not a laughing matter. It makes you very angry and very frustrated. I don't know if you, any of you can relate to that or not. But anytime that I'm tempted with food, and I don't just like food, okay? I use food like a drug. I'm a stress eater. Anytime that there's stress in my life, I turn to food, okay? This is, this is what people like me do, okay? And you probably have something that you turn to in times of stress, too. This thing medicates me, or this activity medicates me and gets the stress out of my life, okay? Um, so anyway, where was I going with all that? When I'm tempted with food, when I'm tempted with food, what do I need to do? I need to choose the cross, I need to go ahead and say, why, why am I tempted with food? It's because there's a stress here. So what am I going to do? Am I going to cover over the stress? Am I going to medicate the stress? Or am I going to try to face the stress? Am I going to pray about the stress? Am I going to do something to deal with the stress that's a little bit more healthier? Maybe I ought to do that. Or even if I'm not going to do that, what am I going to do? Am I going to say, no, I, I can't deal with the stress right now. There's something that's out of my power. A lot of times the stressful things in our lives are things that we can do absolutely nothing about. So here I've got this stress in my life. I can't do anything about it. What am I going to do? I'm going to choose the cross, and I'm going to let the stress remain. Or I'm going to do something different instead of eating it, instead of eating my stress. But what am I going to deal with afterwards? I'm going to deal with hunger pains all afternoon. But what am I going to have 
if I do that faithfully for several days in a row, several weeks in a row, several months in a row, what am I going to have? I'm going to have a new life. And I'm going to need new clothes. And I'm going to have new energy. And I'm going to have a new outlook. And things that used to be too difficult for me are going to be easier for me. So what, am I, what do I do? I choose the cross so that I can embrace the resurrection or the new life that comes afterward. And so for you, what should you do? Are you tempted to steal? Choose the poverty of the cross. There's a new life beyond it. Are you tempted to medicate your life with things, whether it's food or drugs or alcohol? Choose to be sobered by the cross. Are you tempted to um, commit sexual sin? Choose the lonely, exposed nakedness of the cross. There's a new life on the other side of it. Are you tempted to hate or murder? Choose to let that hatred be murdered on the cross itself. Are you tempted to use your, uh, exploit your own power for, for personal gain? Uh, choose the utter powerlessness of being hung on the cross. When you choose the cross over temptation, you defeat it and you find that resurrection and that new life on the other side of it. He wants to give you that new life. He wants to give you that victory over sin. And he wants to give you the innocence and purity that comes along with having pushed sin out of your life for good. The only way to have it, though, is to choose the way of the cross. Jesus embraced the cross. And what does he have now? The name that is above every name. What does he have? Eternal life. What does he have? Standing right there beside God the Father. If we will do the same thing, guess what? You don't get the name above every name. But you do get a good name. You do get a better name. You do get to continue to be called my son in whom I'm well pleased, my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And you get the resurrection, and you get eternal life, and you get health, and you get joy, and you get peace. You get things that you would never have gotten otherwise. Is that a downer? Temptation is a downer. Sin is a downer. But I've got good news for you. Because of the cross, it doesn't have to reign in your life forever. Embrace Jesus. Embrace the cross. Receive the resurrection and the new life. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we pray for the courage to embrace the cross, the lifestyle characterized by the cross, the lifestyle of emptying ourselves, denying ourselves, and embracing what you have for us instead. Give us courage to embrace that. Give us patient endurance while we suffer through the sinful yearnings in our life. Give us strength and good biblical foundation to resist temptation. And when we are resisting, Lord, Give us the hope of the new life that we'll have when sin is out of our life for good. And Lord, when we do succumb to temptation, remind us of the cross that covers all of our failures. We are your children, Lord. We hope you are pleased with us. Transform us into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, stand.
And at the very end here, we are going to recite the Lord's Prayer. I've got it, Hannah. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a good afternoon.